Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah. And this is Bio Eats World, where we talk about how biology is breaking out of the lab and clinic and into our daily lives and on the verge of revolutionizing our entire world in ways we're only just beginning to imagine. So one of the big themes of Bio Eats World is the concept of engineering biology. And this episode is all about the tools for doing that. But what do we mean by engineering biology? We're at the dawn of a new era where we're truly able to design biology from genetically engineered cotton to meat made from plants to incredibly complex engineered cell and gene therapies. And we're just at the start. So in this episode, Alec Nielsen, co-founder and CEO of Asimov, a company that builds tools to program living cells, Vijay Pandey, general partner at A16Z, and myself talk all about where we are on the way to this future, what got us here, the tools we need, libraries of genetic parts, platforms, computer simulations to truly design living systems in the coming century of biology and what the new generation of companies of the future might look like. Very cool. Any favorite insights from this episode? I loved when Alec talked about the possibility of a future career as a cell product manager. I've heard you say two very provocative things about the future of biology, which is, Vijay, you always say it's going to be as transformative as the petroleum era was for the 20th century. And Alec, you say everything in the future is going to be genetically engineered. So where are we today on the cusp of that? How real is it today? It's already here. There's a lot of genetic engineering that's already all around us. It's got, you know, a multi-decade history. You know, this includes everything from genetically modified crops like cotton to cheese, which is produced, you know, for the most part using genetically engineered enzymes that used to have to isolate them from stomach linings of calves. So to some degree, genetic engineering is already all around us in our daily lives. It's going to become increasingly so. If we look at the integrated circuit, the integrated circuit has completely transformed every aspect of our modern society, right? We've got semiconductor circuits in our phones, in our toys, in our medical devices, in our cars, in our toasters, in our fridges. In the same way that the integrated circuit has become just utterly ubiquitous, engineered biology is going to become ubiquitous all around us, all the time. So what are the scientific breakthroughs that have gotten us here? Everything from our ability to read and write DNA, or DNA sequencing and synthesis, respectively, to some pretty foundational discoveries back in the 60s about how cells can, you know, sense their environment and regulate genes in response. So it's truly no one thing. And I think anyone who claims that it's just cheap DNA synthesis or just cheap DNA sequencing, they're missing a bigger part of the story, which is it's this collective of interesting innovations, right? There's everything from 
bioinformatics computational tooling to enzymatic methodologies to allow us to build custom stretches of DNA to, you know, biophysical understanding. The fact that we've got so many genomes sequenced is certainly a boon to being able to find interesting new genetic parts to play around with. But it's really this collection of technologies. It's also a cultural shift because this isn't just about discovering new things in biology. This is about shifting to an engineering mindset. It's actually not so much biologists embracing engineering, but engineers embracing biology that brought them in. And I think it's that cultural shift that has also led to this particular direction we're talking about. And the reason why I would emphasize engineering is that Hannah talked about the sort of analogy to petroleum. What made petroleum so pervasive in our lives, and just looking around, there's like a plastic water bottle there. There's plastic everywhere. We are literally surrounded by it, yeah. It's because of two key factors. First, all plastic is just waste from making gasoline and other fuel products. So the cost of goods is zero, essentially. And we had these beautiful chemical engineering processes that people came up with. I think we're seeing the same thing on the biology side, that biology can shift the cost curve. And now we can engineer the biology side as well. So quick taxonomy of the main tools that have pushed us into this sort of ubiquitous moment. What would you say those are? Yeah. So I would say they fall kind of generally into the wet side and the dry side. And so on the wet side, there's you know a series of molecular innovations that enabled us to cut and paste DNA, to copy DNA. And that's really what forms the backbone for us being able to genetically engineer cells. And then on the software side, you know, it's tools like DNA sequence viewers, which are kind of like word processors for DNA. They allow us to, you know, view and annotate, you know, A's, T's, G's, and C's. I often like to think about like an alternate history where genetic engineering was developed decades before it was. And it's interesting to think about how scientists would have grappled with just the deluge of DNA sequence, right? Like that's in some sense the hard thing about doing biology in a pre-computational era. You can actually like get books where they just printed on you know, <laughs> physical paper like DNA sequences for viruses. And it's yeah. just like hundreds of pages of yeah. A's, T's, G's, and C's for viruses. And I think that's a kind of a glimmer for what things could have looked like in an alternate history. Biology has always been closely intertwined with you know, computation simply because of the scale of DNA sequences that we've needed to contend with. But the design tools have, I would say, not caught up with our ability to, let's say, synthesize DNA and sequence DNA. If you think about what genetic engineers do in the lab, whether that be an academic lab or whether that be at a company, you look at the tools that they use, it's DNA sequence viewers and then a lot of inbuilt knowledge and reverse engineering the scientific literature. There's really no gold standard set of design tools for genetic engineers. So it sounds like we have these sort of I mean, they're very sophisticated, but in some ways kind of blunt tools where we're just kind of throwing them into the mix and then figuring out what to do. We're not sort of systematically using them with a design in mind. Is that what you mean by a design platform? When I talk about design, I mean, how can we build functions inside cells that are incredibly complex? How can we build things quantitatively and precisely? How can we engineer a cell to have an integrated genetic nanocontroller so that it can sense and perceive its environment and all of the environmental cues surrounding it, like chemicals and light and oxygen. Integrate that information using circuitry, whether that be digital circuits, analog circuits, uh, feedback control, and ultimately drive the expression of genes that can give rise to cell behavior, whether that be killing a cancer cell in the human body, whether that be producing some really high value molecule, right? And so we don't have the tools to design those precise and complex 
genetic functions right now. We've got tools that allow us to grapple with lots and lots of A's, T's, G's, and C's. And on the wet side, we've of course got molecular techniques that help us build DNA. But from the perspective of computer-aided design, there's really not much. First, you got to have the tools to build. So you have to have the reading and writing. Without that, the design tools don't even make any sense. But then once you have that, you can still, you don't need the design tools if you want to do a lot of one-off, bespoke, sort of artisanal-like things. You could still do that. You don't need CAD to build an airplane in principle. It's just going to be a lot of work or it's going to be like a really effing expensive airplane. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? um, so, and take a long time. And take a long time. And maybe it'll crash. You know, I mean, so, but once you want to shift from this basically bespoke industrialized process where you want this to be repeatable, where you want to be able to take learnings from one thing and transfer it to the other, all of that means now we need to have this sort of design process. When you, so our factory makes chairs, it's a different process than a human being making a chair with their own hands. It's still a chair, but what you can do in terms of scope is just so much different. Right. We want to build an integrated design platform for programming living cells. And that means development of computational tools that can simulate the underlying biology, as well as biological tools. It feels like we're such early days still. We're starting to see genetic engineering really woven into the fabric around us. But when there's so much still to be either created or discovered, both on the biology side, you know, there are still a lot of unknowns, and the tools are still emerging every day. How do you even begin to think about building a platform that can embrace that kind of unknown aspect? How do you think about that? Yeah. So the entire field is surfing this just rapidly advancing wave of technology, and things are changing every day. You look at the number of papers about CRISPR, you know, if you have like a keyword search for CRISPR, and it's like dozens a week these days. So things are moving incredibly rapidly. There are core sets of things that we believe are kind of fundamental to the process of genetic engineering. Some of the things that we're building include high-quality genetic parts live libraries that are modular so that we can click them together and engineer, you know, larger, more complex functions. What does that library look like? Yeah, so a genetic part is basically a DNA sequence. It's an abstracted view of a DNA sequence. You can think of it kind of as encoding a biochemical primitive, like, you know, make RNA here or stop making RNA or make protein here or, you know, regulate this gene. Just like bits of a program, just like commands. Yeah. Exactly. And so by combining these things in the right way, then we can engineer much more complex devices and systems and functions. And so Part of what we're doing is developing the modular genetic parts to enable programming cells. Part of what we're doing, and this is actually work that we're doing with DARPA, is to develop machine learning approaches that can simulate what a user-defined genetic construct can do. And what do you mean by that? Can you define that for our listeners? Let's kind of work back from maybe the development of a biotechnology product. You know, you've got some idea about the market for a product. The next step is what is the way to genetically engineer a cell to make that product? This could be, you know, plant-based food or whatever. You've got some built-up knowledge about what the types of DNA sequences you could cobble together to engineer a system would do. We don't want to have to build something and then test it out every single time. What we really want to get to is a world where we can predict in silico on a computer what a DNA sequence does before we put it into a cell. This is an audaciously hard problem. I think by many measures it's kind of the holy grail of computational synthetic biology. What we're doing is we're simplifying the problem in some key ways to make this tractable. But the goal is the same. 
to build a unified simulation framework for synthetic biology so that we can try lots of ideas, try lots of designs on a computer without being bottlenecked by needing to physically construct that DNA. So simulate the building of that 747 without actually building it. In chips, this is very common. Before you sort of tape out a microprocessor, you're going to simulate it. And so this is a paradigm, actually, that is very familiar to, I think, most engineers, that you simulate first. And, you know, simulators never are perfect. Like an airplane simulator is never a perfect reproduction, but you can learn a lot by flying a simulator. Biology is very complex, but by breaking it down into parts, it solves two problems. One is that it allows that complexity to be able to be understood in our heads because we've sort of constrained the hierarchy a bit. We don't have to understand how the part works. You just know that it works. Like decades ago, a lot of people liked working on cars and that maybe they don't understand how a carburetor works or turbochargers work, but they know they have these parts and they can put them in the car and that things work out better or not. So first off, that abstraction to parts alone sort of, I think, gives us a lot of things where we can both understand it and we can better simulate it. And we can give ourselves kind of railroad tracks for simulation where for this list, for this library, we've got this. And so you might not have every Lego brick imaginable, but you have enough bricks that you can build something really cool. Exactly. You could imagine that's kind of the black box, that's the the end game, is feed in a DNA sequence and predict what it does. We work in abstractions, so given, you know, a list of genetic parts that have some, you know, reasonably well-behaved performance, can you simulate what that thing does? One other analogy is the history of the 4004 microprocessor. You know, so remember Intel was hired to make a calculator? And so they didn't make a calculator the way people were before they built a microprocessor and embedded in the calculator and essentially had the calculator company pay for the R&D for the microprocessor and then took it from there. So you think about the stuff that you can do with these design tools. There'll be initial products where, you know, the design tools are a means to the end, but you could have done it other ways. But the development of those tools, once you have them, Where you'll be able to go from there, I think will be analogous to where Intel was able to go from there. Can we get into what some of those simulations you've been experimenting with look like? Like what you've learned from them when you start messing around with those Lego blocks? Yeah. I worked on my PhD on a hybrid genetic engineering and computer-aided design framework for programming what we call genetic circuits inside bacteria. This is the idea that we can build a network of genes that does information processing for some useful biotechnology application. That entire platform is built in bacteria. We moved into mammalian because it's a special niche that's high value, high impact, and the design tools there are lacking even further behind what we see in bacteria. And so, you know, of course, mammalian cells are eukaryotes, which are orders of magnitude more complex by you know, many measures than bacteria. And so it's a hard thing to program mammalian cells in a reliable way. And so some of the applications that we're developing these tools for include the production of therapeutics, kind of like patching the human genome with a software upgrade by putting DNA in that fixes some critical defect. And you know, this is already being applied in the therapeutics industry for cell therapies that treat leukemia and lymphoma and gene therapies for treating you know, inherited blindness and spinal muscular atrophy. Those are incredible applications, but they also feel very specialized, very expensive, very complicated. What are some of the earliest examples that you see that, you know, that represent this critical turning point where you think the momentum is in that direction where it truly is all around us? These things usually start first with things that are expensive. So we're not going to start by revolutionizing the very cheapest things. Healthcare is expensive. So that's a very natural first place to start and something we all care about. Also, certain types of molecules are expensive. Flavorings or fragrances or pharmaceuticals 
you know, by starting with something expensive, if you have this cool new technology, that's the right place to monetize it. And then from there, it's just going to work down towards things that are less and less expensive as this technology starts to sort of come more and more to fruition. You know, Alec and I were talking the other day about sort of the ramp of synthetic biology. We sort of imagine three generations. So where are we? So first stage, first generation of synthetic biology was, it's just amazing we can sort of engineer anything. And there was a lot of passion and excitement to go after something that at the time seemed to be critical, which was to come up with alternative fuels. They had jet engine fuel, they could do boats, they could do cars, all that super impressive, except when you think about it, like a barrel of oil is only $100, you know, and like $100 is not that much money. And to do this complicated synthetic process to do a barrel of oil was kind of like having an artisan sort of hand draw the grain of wood versus like digging a tree. You know, so ironically, in the end, oil is relatively cheap, and this is a very expensive way to make something cheap. The first generation was characterized by going after things that are sold at high volumes and at low margins. Ah, yeah, of course. People call it the biofuels bubble, and that was the first generation of synthetic biology. And so the second generation are companies that, you know, started to move up the value stack, working on manufacturing things that are higher value, right? Higher value commodities, including things like flavors and fragrances. And often the technology underlying these companies is, you know, lots and lots of robotic automation. Those business models have really been around genetic engineering as a service, and there's many such companies in that space. And then with the third generation of synthetic biology company, which we're now in the wave of, working on really high-value products like therapeutics and things that are just inaccessible using any other means like chemical synthesis with a focus on using computer-aided design, using machine learning to design things that would take evolution too long to build. And so really building upon, you know, the automation technology of the past generation with better computational tools. DNA, if you can program DNA, that opens up a virtually infinite design space you are never going to be able to brute force that all. And so what we need isn't just more automation. What we need is better design tools, you know, better tools to really guide the engineering in an intelligent way. Yeah, I mean, there is kind of interesting. It's kind of like not understanding assembly language, but you just throw out random code and you screen the code to see if it does what you want. And, you know, that complexity, you'd have to screen billions and billions of code snippets if you didn't understand how to code before it finally works. And, yeah, you could say the solution is I'm going to have lots of robots doing the the code screening. But in the end, if you just understood it, at least maybe with some restricted opcodes and so on, you could actually then really just code it, which is really the difference. Yeah, I, I love, you know, Vijay, your analogy of... You know, more automation is like more monkeys with more typewriters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't help you write Shakespeare. It doesn't write, help you write Shakespeare, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the generations of kind of like the makers and the scientists, the builders. Where's the consumer in that? Or where does that measure in the timeline? I, I think, you know, what we're seeing in this newest generation of go-to-markets is that these companies are using design principles and really advanced engineering, not just automation. That's the technology, but it's coupled with products that have existing markets that people already want and that these are drop-in replacements. So that's why now. That's the why now. That drop-in replacement means you don't have to change behavior. And these customers are typically like corporate customers, not consumers. But you don't have to change behavior. It's just better and cheaper. And so the sales proposition is much more straightforward. So like buying a burger. 
right? Exactly. So the go-to-market for Impossible Burger is much more straightforward. Yeah. The way I think about this is that if we're doing it right, the consumer may not really notice. You know, was a consumer ever thinking, oh, this plastic bottle versus a glass bottle? Thank God someone figured out how to come up with chemical plants and enzymatic or catalytic methods. Nobody was looking for a fix to the glass bottle. Yeah, nobody was excited about chemical engineering other than chemical engineers. Right, right, right. (laughs) You know, but what they found was like, oh, wow, actually, this thing costs so much less. I mean, now we have a bottle which in principle, is disposable. In practice, we have now another realization of it. And we should get to that, actually, about how biology may be able to undo some of the mistakes of the petroleum economy to not just be scalable, but to be sustainable. Really, if we're doing our job right, consumers will just notice there's this new product that's better. If you have something at better lower cost, you just buy that. So I actually love, I think we should go there and talk about just sort of from first principles, why it is better to try and do something with biology's own tools than through kind of other processes, the chemical engineering processes. Why is that a better principle? I think there's cost and there's quality. And we can talk about both. The reason why petroleum was cheap because it was like essentially trash, nothing is better than using carbon from the atmosphere. Actually, Alec used the example of trees. Like, you know, who pays for the trees? Actually, I sound a little bit like the Lorax or something like that. The banker Lorax. <laughs> um, but like, who pays for the trees? Like, nobody pays for trees. Like, sunlight comes in, CO2 comes out from the atmosphere, and these, you know, giant trees, you know, redwoods and so on get created. So that's pretty good, which is zero cogs. But actually, the amazing thing is we can even do better because bio in this space could even envision negative cogs because people want to sequester CO2. And the negative cogs, that beats petroleum. Interesting. Biology does so much, so many incredible things at zero cost. And, you know, that's the potential to make things sustainably, but also to make things that don't currently exist. Biology is capable of things that are, you know, I think on the face of it, somewhat miraculous whether it's octopuses being able to change their camouflage in different environments to blue whales, which are these just like massive, massive objects, and thinking about how that grew from a single cell. Biology really enables things that look like magic. And so I think part of the thing that's going to happen over the coming decades is right now a lot of people think about, you know, how could we build something that's kind of on the periphery of what already exists and that we're comfortable with, but a sphere of things that people use biology to tackle is going to continue to grow. There's going to be applications that are impossible to predict from today's perspective, right? Like imagine trying to predict, you know, the blockchain from the advent of the transistor, right? There's just things that are too far outside of our window and our experience. And this is going to be true across all domains, whether it be materials to foods, to therapeutics, to consumer goods, to manufacturing infrastructure, I think we're kind of in the base of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs stage (laughs) of biology where people are thinking about how to be healthier, how to make things that we wear, things that, you know. The primitive stuff. The the primitive stuff. But I think in the really long term, to get a bit, you know, science fiction for a minute, you know, the ability to really engineer biology is going to fundamentally be a medium for self-expression and self-actualization, right? We're all biological and... I think in the limit, humans are going to be free to modify their biology in lots of really interesting ways. And right now, our ability to steer that, it's still primitive. And really, if we think about 
giving people full expressiveness and self-actualization for their biology, true it's going design. to require, yeah, true design. It's going to require genetic engineering. And of course, this gets into a lot of sticky ethical issues, like should we be doing this at the germline? Should we be making any decisions at all about the next generation? But fundamentally, I think biology will ultimately be used as a vehicle for self-actualization. The top of the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's wild. I want to talk a little bit to you about, Alec, what it's like to create a company in this kind of unique moment. I mean, it's new products, it's new ways of thinking about designing products, it's all new models, new business models. Like, how, What is it like to build a company in that kind of environment? And are there kind of culture clashes where the science and the engineering meet? How do you think about building a team like that, building a company like that? So building a company at the intersection of computation and biology is fascinating. And I always say we have a culture of recombination, which is kind of like a (laughs) a biology joke. But this idea that we're bringing in lots of different backgrounds, lots of different knowledge domains, we're remixing those. And all of the interesting work is at the intersection these days. And so that's always a challenge. You know, we've got people who used to work at Amazon sitting next to people who used to work at, you know, a big biopharma company. Roughly half of the engineers work in the lab, working with cells, doing genetic engineering. And the other half of the company develops computational tools, biophysical modeling, with a lot of integration between the two. We get asked often, why don't you just develop software. And the reason is that it wouldn't work if we just developed software. Programming anything in biology is really, really hard, right? Like we can't do it predictively. The complexity of biology is just staggering. And so for this to work, we need to integrate the software with the biology side. Is the challenge in approach? Is it in culture, in your education? Like what are the actual, how do they bubble up these challenges? Yeah, so a couple of things. So the type of work in the lab is very different from the type of work at a computer. You know, for code to compile, that's relatively fast compared to the time for a cell to grow. You typically need to grow them for at least a day, often multiple days. And so just the time scales of being able to do things is dramatically different, which, you know, changes how people... Oh, yeah. All kinds of implications. Yeah, like downtime in the office, all of that. There's also, of course, surmounting language, right? And that's maybe, you know, like an NP-hard type of challenge, like to get people fully up to speed on the things that we're working on without sacrificing technical rigor. And so this is something that we always work on. Like, what is the way to get the idea across, get the engineering across to people who may not have your background? You're sort of translating. Yes, exactly. The translation component is fundamental to our company and I think many others who are at this intersection. That's fascinating. What are some of the other sort of core things where it's different from a software company and it's different from a traditional kind of biotech company? What about product market fit? Too often, people get enamored with the technology and then they find the best go-to-market they can do with that technology. Instead, it's ideal to find a pain point, to find the market, and then think about that match of the technology that will be the best technology for that pain point. Because that will probably be a bigger outcome because you're already going after something really valuable. And even incremental changes on big markets are better than sort of wholesale like revolutions in very tiny markets. One of the things early on that we grappled with is we're building, you know, new technology. Do we want to try to build a new market? And we decided to go after markets that already exist. And so in some sense, we're piggybacking off of a business model that's decades old where we license uh, biological platforms to be used for the manufacture of therapeutics, et cetera. And so this is something that other companies figured out a long time ago. It's a creative business model for which there's already 
already in existence proof. And in fact, you know, multi-billion dollar markets that, you know, use this business model. And so we made the decision early on to go after mammalian cell engineering because it was a good fit with these pre-existing business models that were lucrative in the therapeutic space. You know, I think it would have been much harder to try to build a fundamentally new type of business model for something that didn't exist with using brand new technology yes, as well. Yeah. Typically, you can only innovate in one or the other. And so by going to markets that exist, at least then it's just natural that this is a better product. You know, Hannah, to your question earlier about just how things are different, if you took out the word bio and put in the word hardware into everything we said, and we're talking about building like an iPhone, an iPhone, and you said, well, are you going to need more than software engineers? I'm like, yeah, of course you're going to need more than software engineers for an iPhone. You're going to need software and hardware, and you're going to have, have experts in both and about how they interact with each other. What makes Apple so successful about the iPhone is the fact that it's an integrated product and that they can do a lot of things when it's an integrated product. And so these early bio applications will have both software and hardware, and there are going to be hardware complexities, just like there's hardware complexities on the hard side. But I think the spirit of it doesn't really have to be that radically different. And it's going to be fascinating to watch specialization occur in genetic engineering as well. So, you know, right now, if you look at hardware engineers, there's various, you know, subtypes, embedded controls, people who are, you know, gurus at, you know, designing analog circuits. And the same thing is going to be true for genetic systems. We're going to have people who excel at doing the metabolic engineering. If you want to engineer, you know, some cell to grow on some particular food source, there's going to be people who are really the experts in getting the cell to do some interesting computation to map, you know, environmental inputs into a cell behavior. There's going to be people who are working on the energy subsystems of the cell. So there's going to be all of these different types of people who are working on different facets of genetically engineering a cell. And that's going to then, of course, be layered in with all of the specialization on the software side, people who are cloud infrastructure and platform gurus, people who work on machine learning and you know computational biology. One of the interesting things that we do is we do product management at the level of the cell. Oh my gosh, talk about what that means. Right. We want to engineer features inside cells that you know are useful to our users and our customers. And so this idea of you know really listening to the customer and building the feature in the best possible way, one of the ways that you know this manifested itself is early on we were working on this therapeutic application and the best way to engineer it, you know, just from a pure kind of engineering rigor perspective, would have been to use genetic parts derived from viruses. These would have been completely deconstructed viruses that were no longer infectious. We were just using some of the parts. However, there's a perception in the therapeutics industry that, you know, if you're using viruses in contexts that don't require it, then that could incur some extra regulatory oversight. And Maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but it's the perception. And so this steered product management. We had to build things that not only did the function inside of the cell, but in a way that was palatable to our customers. How fascinating. So that's the job of the future, product manager of the cell, yes. <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, okay, one last fun question. The wildest, most immediate, next big application of designing biology. I'm really excited about how we can engineer human biology for therapeutic ends, cell and gene therapy. You know, I'm not alone in this. It's a really exciting time for cellular and genetic medicine with historic approvals lately. That's just going to continue to snowball, right? Long term, maybe a bit longer term on that timescale of a couple of decades, I'm really interested in how synthetic biology is going to dovetail with neurotechnology. Looking 25 years out, it's going to be engineering the brain 
likely using genetic engineering. So, you know, potentially enabling better brain-computer interfaces by making neurons able to respond to light, right? Photons have higher spatial precision than the electric fields that you get from an electrode if you implant that in a brain, so it could be a better way to read and write brain states. I think that's going to be a fundamental shift that is going to marry both the biology side and the software side into, uh, you know, a whole, you know, another degree. Okay, so I got a good prediction for you. So the problem with the invasive stuff is that nobody wants to get a hole in their head or to sew up things. And so my prediction is that there's going to be a Trojan horse way for us to get this done. Trojan horse way is going to be CAR-T for cancer patients. What does that mean? What am I alluding to? CAR-T means we're taking cells out of the body, we're engineering them outside the body, such that if we screw up the engineering, we can actually throw those cells away. We can like really make sure we did a good job engineering, then we put them back in. And for cancer patients, this is literally life or death. And so everyone's on board with that. And the key thing is, what is it doing? It's revving up your immune system. It's supercharging you as a human being. And so now you can imagine backing off from cancer, which is lethal to sort of other diseases, which are maybe less imminent, to other things that are just kind of, it would be nice to have. And then finally, you get to a means to supercharge our bodies without taking on a lot of risk because the engineering is done on the outside. That may be a natural Trojan horse to do. And there's limits to what you can do, but if you couple that with delivery schemes, with editing schemes, pretty soon we're getting more and more comfortable with edits. And with sort of like something we never do now, we never change out the parts of our car, but something you used to do all the time, I think we start becoming more comfortable doing that with our bodies. Yeah, it's conceivable that by the end of this century we'll have cures to all disease and other types of applications are going to piggyback on the tech that gets built up around that. Everyone talks about rocket science being the hard problem, but biology is the hard problem. We need to be able to manufacture food. We need to be able to manufacture drugs inside space stations. One day, you know, much further out, we need to be able to engineer entire biomes. These are problems that biology is uniquely equipped to solve, not rockets. So biology beyond nature itself. Well, I think an important point is that When people think about biology, they think about their bodies, they think about the foods that we eat, maybe they're starting to think about materials, but biology is just fundamentally advanced molecular nanotechnology that is our best way to program matter. And if you think about how the technology is going to evolve over the centuries to come, the successor to biology is going to enable us to manipulate the entire physical world at the atomic level. That's what biology is. It's amazing. Century of biology, here we come. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z Bio Newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts. <laughs>